Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on September 23, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. In this episode, we'll look at the increasingly important question of when exactly a person dies, because it affects whether somebody else might be able to benefit from their organs. Science journalist Robin Morantz Hennig tackled the question in her article in the September issue of Scientific American titled, When Does Life Belong to the Living? Robin is one of the country's best-known science writers. She's the author of Pandora's Baby, A History of In Vitro Fertilization, and of The Monk in the Garden, a look at Gregor Mendel's world-changing 19th century genetics research. Robin and I spoke at Scientific American's offices. So, Robin, there's there's this... It's almost a game that, and I don't mean to trivialize it because it's the most serious thing there is. It's life and death. But there's this kind of a game that, that the medical profession is straight jacketed into regarding time of death and organ donations. Right. I, I think of it more like a little dance. That they've had to do. Right. You do describe yeah. it that way in the right. article, in fact. I don't think that we even would have wondered when the moment of death is were it not for the fact that we need those organs for donations. You know, so even the first time that anybody defined death back in the 60s, it was because of the complexities of donating organs. Defined an exact time of death. You knew that if somebody was, you know, let me be gross if they were decaying they were obviously <laughs> dead I and mean, you know history is is rife with instances of somebody who's about to be buried who pops up in the coffin during a wake because they're not dead so this reality of organ donation has made time of death down to the second right. a and crucial it, entity and it also made brain death a crucial entity because um you know we traditionally think that when you stop breathing and your heart stops beating you're dead but we needed some of those organs. We needed the breathing to go on artificially if the organs were to be transplantable. Uh, so brain death, which, you know, I think that it really is a, a sincere, accurate designation of, of somebody not existing anymore. But brain death needed to be stated specifically as the equivalent to not breathing, not, not having your heart beating. You have this other expression, which apparently is a term of art that I had never seen before, the heart-beating cadaver. Right. That's that's the kind of cadaver, the kind of um, uh, organ donor whose heart is kept beating artificially. Um, he's not literally brain dead. Brain death is defined as no function in the brain cortex or in the brain stem, which controls all the um, autonomic functions. Uh, so he's not brain dead, but he's going to die. Uh, he's kept alive by these, you know, heroics, and you have to sort of wait until his heart stops when, you know, you remove him from the life support systems. And when his heart does stop, you have to wait a little while to see if it's going to start up again. Spontaneously. Right. Which, you know, even if that did happen, it doesn't mean that he's not going to die soon, but it's um, it's one of these other dances that surgeons go through to make sure that what they're are taking an organ from is a dead donor. The question, though, becomes then, should the dead donor rule be the thing that we reconsider, that we, you know, are we really even taking organs from people who are actually dead, or are we, um, are we doing that dance? You know, are we, are we pretending that 
we've waited those two minutes to make sure the heart doesn't start up again. And so this is really um, somebody who's who's actually dead, who we can take the the organs from. Maybe it's more um, more truthful to just say, well, we'll take these organs and that will be the cause of death in this terminally ill patient. And that would really define a new but legally, morally, and ethically acceptable official cause of death would be cause of death by organ donation. Right. I mean, there's already cause of death by removal of life support, if you think about it. Um, the death certificate doesn't say that. It says that what whatever was the underlying cause, the, the need for being put on life support to begin with, but the proximate cause actually is that you've taken the machinery away. Um, the same thing in one way of thinking about this, the same thing could be done for organ donation. But it's very creepy. You know, I think that's what's keeping anybody from from really suggesting this seriously. Well, it brings to mind, you know, the, the Monty Python sketch, the, the organ donation sketch? I don't know These that one. These two guys show up at, at a house and knock on the door. And uh, they say we're here for you. we're here for your liver, <laughs> and it's, what do you what do you mean you're here for my liver? I'm I'm alive. Well, you signed your card, <laughs> and they proceed to remove his liver while he's still alive. Well, that's what everybody's <laughs> afraid of, though, because you know you think you signed your card, you have your organ donor card. What are they going to do now? You know, if if they really really need my organs, um, are they going to maybe not take such good care of me? Are they going to do something that hastens my death because there's somebody waiting in the wings who they think is more valuable? Um, I don't. I think there are enough checks and balances to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. But uh, even proposing creating a new definition of death as death by organ donation is um, is something that really worries a lot of people. And after the death panels arguments of the health care bill. I mean, who really is going to ever have the political will to propose this kind of a thing? You're right. And I mean, when you think about what those death panels were, all they were were, were uh, offering uh, alternatives for end-of-life care. They weren't death panels at all. Well, they but were offering insurance coverage for those, those because those right. happen already all That's the time. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, this would be really easy to mess around with and, and make political hay with. Let's go back because I think we might have been a little vague in our earlier discussion. It literally is two minutes, 120 seconds. That has become the the ethical window that you must wait after the heart stops before you begin harvesting organs. Well, that's become sort of the convention. Um, it's called the Pittsburgh Convention, in fact, because um, there's been no recorded case in which the heart spontaneously started up again uh, once it didn't start up after two minutes, you know, uh, there's there was no reason to wait for two and a half minutes because the odds were if it was 120 seconds, the person was really dead. But that's actually been changed recently. I talk about this in the article about um, some pediatric surgeons who actually waited uh, 75 seconds in one case because they were pretty sure that that heart wasn't going to start up again even after a minute plus. And we should say it's not a case that if the heart had started, the kid would have just bounced off the table and said, oh, I'm fine now. Exactly. I mean, there were other huge problems. Right. That- this this child in this in these cases or this individual um, is going to die. I mean, that's very clear. Uh, and so the question just is, do you um, do you orchestrate the moment of death with 
the availability of a transplant surgeon so that the organs haven't started to lose their oxygen after the heart stops beating and are still usable. There was a New England Journal of Medicine article that kind of summed up the the current situation and recommended alterations. That's not exactly how it happened. The, The New England Journal of Medicine article described these pediatric surgeons taking um, hearts from from uh, dying infants in less than the, the typical two minutes of waiting for the heart to stop beating. Um, once that article came out, the journal kind of figured that this was going to be very controversial. And so they convened a roundtable discussion from uh, some surgeons and some bioethicists talking about this issue, talking about whether the surgeons who had written the article had actually violated any ethical guidelines and maybe what new guidelines should be. That's where um, I first came across this one um, bioethicist who says, let's let's cut the um, charade of pretending that these people are, are really dead because we've done something to the definition of death, and let's instead say we're taking these organs from people who are imminently dead and, and that, who have given really clear consent, uh, which he, he says is the, the most important part of that equation, is, is that they really understand that this is what's happening. And that's Truog. That's Dr. Right. Rick. I think it's pronounced Trug. Trug, okay. Yeah. But then you have Arthur Kaplan, who's a really well-known bioethicist and is on the board of advisors for Scientific American, who has – has it's not that he completely disagrees, but he's worried about the, the slope, the slippery slope. He's worried about the slippery slope, and he's also worried about how it will look to people. You know, the this uh, Monty Python sketch you talked about, um, that is people who are being asked to donate their organs before they're actually dead. And so if we say, well, forget about the dead donor rule, that's just made us um, come up with, with um, tricks to make it sound like these donors are dead, let's not have a dead donor rule. If you say that, then, then these kind of um, scary prospects are going to be, seem even more imminent. And then there was a, a bio – the President's Bioethics Commission. There was a report they issued in 2008 where they were uh, leery of, of making any kind of changes like this. That's right. But what they did do was they uh, endorsed the idea of brain death, uh, what they were calling the neurological standard of death. Um, and they said that if the brain stem and the brain – the frontal cortex are not working, this individual is actually dead. Uh, that's actually a very tricky thing for people to understand because especially if that if that person is hooked up to some life support actually even calling it life support is is confusing because what it is is kind of death support but right. the, or viability support right right so if the individual is hooked up to all that his heart is beating um his lungs are functioning he's pink he's warm he doesn't look dead but the bioethics commission reviewed all of the scientific evidence and said, but he really is dead. There's no coming back. You know, this isn't a persistent vegetative state where sometimes there's actually activity in there. This is death. Um, so it was interesting for that group to come up with that decision because they're, they were a very conservative group of bioethicists. And um, I was surprised and uh, impressed that they had really gone through some of this very carefully. And that was their conclusion. Right. Because usually you can kind of predict how a presidential bioethics commission is going to behave by looking at the date, the, the year of 
their uh, publication of their of their opinions. Right, like which president was this? Exactly. Right. So this is 2008. So George W. Bush is still president, which means it's probably a conservative and religiously informed bioethics commission. Right. And, you know, the history of bioethics commissions has been that um, they're they're convened by a particular president. They're asked to review these very tricky questions and they issue their their decisions. And then generally they disband and a new bioethics commission is formed to answer the same question because the new president wants a different answer. Right. There's a really interesting kind of ethical situation that we don't really go into too much in the article. But you know, it's a very famous example of um, – you know, there's a guy on a railroad track and there's five people on the other railroad track. The trolley equation, right? The trolley <laughs> right. equation. And if you have the opportunity to change the trolley from going onto the track that's only got one person or, or the one that has five people or only has one person, would you do it? And most people will do it and, and feel kind of comfortable with their ethical decision. But if – the same kind of situation comes up where you actively have to kill somebody to achieve the same goal. It's very different in people's emotional reaction to the, to the question. And this kind of situation also exists here because we are, for kind of implicitly obvious reasons, we're prioritizing here the person we're going to harvest the organs from rather than the people who may be in almost as dire a condition who will be saved by those organs. Right. But we can never actively kill the person if there's a chance that they are still in some small way alive right. just to get those organs and maybe save, you know, three other people with two kidneys and a liver. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard the uh, the trolley problem um, taken to its logical extreme what you suggested was, you know, the the first question is, do you flip a switch so that you kill one individual and save the five on the other track? The second question is, do you actually, what I've heard it as is throw a fat man off a bridge right. <laughs> so that you stop the train and, and it doesn't kill the five individuals? And then I've heard it taken to the next level, which is you walk into a room where there are um, five people in need of five different organs. And there's a healthy person standing there. Do you kill him and save those five people? Right. Uh, and you, that's what you're reacting to is that something like this kind of equation that people have to come up with is, is whose life is more worthwhile. And, um, the truth is that the, the donor is going to die anyway. The person who's waiting for the new organ is probably not going to die once he gets the organ, is going to die if he doesn't get the organ. Uh, and, the individ the the family of the people whose um whose you know loved one is dying and could be an organ donor tend to want the organs to be in in good shape and to be able to donate them to make some sense of that person's death um you know it it tends to be a very um gratifying experience for the the bereaved family to think that the heart and lungs are working in some other individual. Some part of the deceased is actually still alive. Right, right. Uh, are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. I'm also a bone marrow donor. I mean, you know, when you when you say, are you a donor, I'm on a registry for bone marrow 
transplantation if need be, and I have that little thing checked off on my driver's license. And I've spoken to my family about it, too, which is really the part that you really need to do. Yeah, as have I. I've told Mm -hmm. them, please, uh, should I die, please consider me to be a big pile of (laughs) uh, harvestable meat for Mm -hmm. somebody else to use. Yeah, but you have to die in the right circumstance for that to happen. And and, um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen that often. Um, or fortunately, I guess. But, um, you know, if you live to a ripe old age and die a natural death, you're, you're not going to be an organ donor. Right. And also, if you're, if you're exposed to some toxin that might make your organs, uh, unusable. Right. Right. So you want, you want to die nice and clean <laughs> and young and healthy <laughs> if you're going to be an organ donor. No, we just, we want everybody to live a nice, nice, healthy, long life. And, uh, you know, in the unfortunate case of any accidents, then at least some of the organs can be harvestable. Um, I did a column a few months back people might want to look at that describes how a guy who was on a, a scooter riding hands-free while he was texting and had earbuds in from his smartphone. He was texting on the smartphone and had the earbuds in, so he couldn't see, he couldn't hear. And he was uh, driving hands-free. And uh, he, I had passed him when I saw all this, and then he caught up to me at a, at a light, and I rolled down the window, and I said, hey. And he, <laughs> he didn't really hear me. He saw me waving at him, and he took the earbuds out. And I said, uh, I just hope you signed your donor card. <laughs> and he, he looked at me you know, quizzically, and he said, huh? I said, well, I, I hope you signed your donor card because – your life expectancy is like eight <laughs> minutes, and at least, you know, somebody might benefit from your imminent demise. So, Robin Moran's Henning, are you, are you working on another book right now? What, are you, what's, what else are you working on? Um, I don't know yet. Um, I just wrote an article about emerging adults, about 20-something-year-old young people, and I might be turning that into a book. I'm not sure. And that was for the New York Times magazine. Right. You often contribute. Right. What, what were some of the reactions to that? Um, well, the, the funny ones were things like, oh, you're just old and jealous. Uh, I don't know how they realized how old I am, but, but they did. Um, and, because you know. Because no 20-something year old could write that article. <laughs> Is that it? The article was basically about how th- this generation of young people doesn't quite seem prepared for reality, well, it, right? No, it wasn't exactly that. And I think that a lot of people saw a, that kind of judgment in it. And I don't actually, I don't judge young people harshly. Some of my favorite daughters are young people. <laughs> um, I, what the article was about is that, that young people now are, seem to be taking longer to attain some of the traditional markers of adulthood than their predecessors did. You know, they're marrying later, they're having children later, they're settling into their careers later. And so the question is, what? why is that? And um, is there actually a new developmental stage that's akin to adolescence and not quite adult, that um, that we should be thinking of these kids as being in the middle of. It's called graduate school. <laughs> and uh, But th- some of the reactions were... Some of the reactions were, why are you so critical of us? It's not our fault. It's your fault. You left us a bad world. The economy is so bad. Some of the reactions, though, the ones I really valued, were from people in their 20s or their parents saying, this sounds just like me. Thank you for making me not feel so odd about it. 
You can visit Robin Morantz Hennig's website at www.robinhennig.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the first continuous human-powered ornithopter flight finally happened in Canada over five centuries after da Vinci sketched the flapping wing flying machine. Story two, also from Canada, a company is developing an electric car, the body of which will be made from hemp. Story three, over 7% of the entire world's population is on Facebook. And story four, playing football was the most common reason for an emergency room visit because of a concussion in the U.S., even for kids in the 8 to 13-year-old range. Time's up. Story one is true. An ornithopter piloted by a Ph.D. candidate in engineering at the University of Toronto flew for over 19 seconds, traveling 145 meters, which is longer than the Wright brothers' first flight. Story two is true. Calgary's Motive Industries is developing the Hemp Auto, or Cannabis Car, which is really being called the Kestrel, rather than, say, the Cheech and Chong Mobile. Henry Ford actually made a hemp car, too, long ago. It's ordinarily illegal to grow hemp in the U.S., but they can grow it in Canada, and the U.S. can import goods made of hemp that's been processed. So you may see a Kestrel on the road sometime in the U.S. soon, or you may just think you saw one. And story three is true, 7.6% of the world's population has a Facebook account, according to graphical research published on the website Sociological Images. 43% of North Americans and 20% of Europeans have an account. All of which means that story four, about 8 to 13-year-old kids getting the most concussions from football, is totally bogus. But what is true is that in sports-related concussions that caused an emergency room visit, football was the leader for kids from 14 to 19 years old. That's according to research in the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, covering the years 2001 to 2005. For kids between 8 and 13 years old, more concussions happened in bicycling accidents than were sustained playing football. That's it for this episode. If you remember the last episode, George Musser and I were talking about how time moves at different rates at even small differences in altitude. For more on that, check out the article just posted on our website on September 23rd by John Matson, titled How Time Flies, Ultra-Precise Clock Rates Vary with Tiny Differences in Speed and Elevation. And visit the newlookscientificamerican.com for all your science news. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits that website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>